Good evening. Uh, it's wonderful to see such a full house for this year's Syme Lecture. And you're very welcome to Wolfson College. When Sir Ronald Syme died in 1989, he was described in one of his obituaries as the greatest historian of ancient Rome since Theodore Mommsen and the most brilliant exponent of the history of the Roman Empire since Edward Gibbon. The obituarist added, charmingly, that his instinct for Roman antiquity often allowed him to speak naturally of the ancient Romans in the first-person plural. <laughs> for us now at Wolfson, Ronald Syme has probably become as legendary and monumental a figure as those ancient Romans with whom he consorted with such intellectual intimacy and freedom. This is partly because of the distinguished tradition we have upheld of the named lecture in his memory, and partly because of the great classical library he bequeathed us, which has recently been added to by the Colin Wells Library, making Wolfson, with its cluster in ancient world studies, one of the key Oxford centres for classical scholarship and research. It's a great pleasure to me to introduce as the 2011 Syme lecturer, Professor Dennis Feeney, Professor of Classics and Geiger Professor of Latin at Princeton University. I overlapped with Dennis very enjoyably at New College in the late 1990s in the course of the meteoric journey that has taken him from Auckland via Cambridge and Oxford to Princeton. Dennis Feeney's work on Latin literature and Roman culture is well known to you all, I'm sure, perhaps especially out of a prolific career in three books, The Gods in Epic, first published in 1991, Literature and Religion at Rome, first published in 1998, and Caesar's Calendar, published in 2007. Idly browsing yesterday, as one does when one is expecting a visiting lecturer, through the online reviews of his book on Caesar's calendar, the book which brilliantly describes how the Romans imagined and constructed historical time, I found this delightful entry from someone called Alicia. The rarest type of classical scholarship manages to be both as playful and profound as the ancient literature it studies. Unlike much online criticism, I thought this was absolutely spot on and a good summing up of Dennis Feeney's qualities as a classical scholar. One thing that links these remarkable books, remarkable both for their scrupulous scholarly knowledge and their engaging accessibility, is their ambition to have us fundamentally rethink Roman literature, Roman culture and Roman ways of thought. Dennis Feeney has been a highly influential figure in arguing that Roman literature has been wrongly, indeed patronizingly read, based on a deeply grounded Greek-Roman antithesis and on attitudes to Roman literature as secondary. Instead, he has maintained, as he says in Literature and Religion at Rome, that the invention of Roman literature, which he describes as creating a national literature in the vernacular on the model of another national literature, is, I quote him, one of the most extraordinary events in history. The question to ask, he says, is not only how, but why it happened. Again, in The Gods in Epic, he says that the Romans' creation of a national literary culture in response to the literary culture of the Greeks is a phenomenon which fascinates and baffles us as it fascinated and baffled them. These, I think and hope, are the kinds of questions he will be addressing today in his Syme lecture, The Contact Zone, The Creation of a Roman Literature. Please make him very welcome. Thank you very much, Hermione, for those very kind words. 
Does everybody have a handout? It's an incredibly boring handout, I'm afraid. Uh, there's just some bibliography at the back, and then there's a passage of Polybius and a passage of Livy. I'm not going to get to those until right at the end of the lecture. I just wanted to tell you so you didn't panic as we got to minute 40, and I still hadn't started to refer to the handout. Uh, I must begin by thanking Hermione uh, very warmly for this invitation. It's a great honor for any classicist to be invited to give the Syme Lecture. For a New Zealand classicist like me, it's a very special honor to be invited to give a lecture named after one of the three greatest New Zealanders, along with Ernest Rutherford and Edmund Hillary. And perhaps after recent events in Auckland, we could add Richie McCaw to that list. <laughs> I had the privilege of meeting uh, Sir Ronald Syme on two occasions. On the second occasion, at the age of 84, five years after the first time that we'd been introduced, he displayed his astounding prosopographical command by remembering who I was. And I went to a number of lectures that he gave in Auckland. When I was an undergraduate in Auckland, he would periodically return like some great comet. And on the first of these visits, he came and gave a lecture to the very large general Roman history course that Patrick Lacey was teaching. Uh, the topic for the day was Julius Caesar, someone who a couple of people in the room had probably only heard of the week before. And as Syme's mesmerizing lecture went on, I found the atmosphere more and more strange. And I, you know, I was 17, I couldn't put my finger on quite what it was, but as the lecture developed, I gradually realized exactly as Hermione said in the quotation from uh, his obituary, that, that Syme was talking about Julius Caesar as if he was someone he knew as if he were a personal acquaintance, a colleague. It was very moving. It made an extraordinarily powerful impression on me. And I especially remember Syme uh, conjuring up the last months of Caesar's life, that exhausted and lonely eminence of his. There's no one left to compete with after a lifetime fueled by incessant competition. So it was very eye-opening about Caesar as well as about Syme. Now, in general, I'm very suspicious of biographical readings of scholarship. There was a big vogue for this about 25 years ago, uh, the personal voice in classical scholarship, uh, which usually amounted to not much more than saying, you have to listen to what I'm saying about the Odyssey because my mother was an alcoholic. <laughs> but in Ronald Syme's case, as everybody knows, the colonial experience mattered greatly. And it was, as the new historicists like to say, no coincidence that so much of his writing was about colonial elites and about the colonial who made his way to the metropolis and conquered the heights of ambition. Now, my story tonight is going to be informed by the colonial experience, broadly understood, since I'm going to be looking at the beginning of the literature in the Latin language from the, from the point of view of the colonial context of central and southern Italy and Sicily. This was the crucial contact zone, the place where the cultures of Greece and Italy overlapped in a very messy and complex Venn diagram. This contact zone was the homeland of the first practitioners of the new literature, men who made their way to Rome and played their indispensable part in the creation of the new literature and the new culture that it enabled. And as we'll see, the Antipodean colonial context has been an important venue for rethinking the transformative power of Greek culture in the ancient colonial context. So my subject is the beginning of Roman literature, and obviously in the nature of things, this is something that we cannot pin down with absolute precision but we can narrow it down to within three days, either September the 13th, 14th, or 15th of 240 BC. <laughs> I'm not being entirely facetious, but I am being... <laughs> uh, this was during the Ludia Romani, the Roman Games, 
special Roman games that were put on in that year to celebrate the victory over Carthage the year before. And this was the occasion upon which the Romans, so far as we know, first witnessed a staging of a translation of an Attic dramatic script into Latin. And we go from those Ludi Romani of 240, the victory games over Carthage, down to a period about a century later when the Romans were in the unique position of having the only other vernacular literature in the Mediterranean, apart from that of the Greeks, with tragedies, comedies, epics, satires, and histories in Latin, together with a coherent mythology and historiography that bound them in to the systematic mythology and historiography of the Greeks. The transformation of Roman culture in this period, especially the beginning of their literature, is a subject which has become a very hot topic in the last 10 or 15 years. And it's easy at times to feel that we just keep on reinventing the wheel. And I'm especially prone to this depressing feeling whenever I've read anything by Friedrich Leo, who seems to have had every insight that one could. So I try to console myself by reminding myself of the analogy that Damien Neelis likes to make of the thread of a corkscrew. It may feel as if you're going round and round in circles, but you're actually going up. But, of course, the thread of a corkscrew can be envisioned as going down as well as up, so it's not necessarily always encouraging. But I do keep circling back to this, pro to this whole problem, as the snippets that Hermione uh, read from my books uh, show. It's like the mythical uh, structure of Freudian analysis. Every time you think you've stripped away the last layer of repression, it turns out there's still another one underneath. Because I do continue to be amazed at the fact that there is a Roman literature, that there is a literature in the Latin language. And I think we ought periodically to step back and remind ourselves of just how extraordinary it was that the Romans should equip themselves with the literature in Latin based on the literature of the Greeks. The entire process was contingent and unpredictable to the highest degree. The creation of a Roman literature wasn't just a matter of time, something that was bound to happen sooner or later, but instead one of the strangest events that we know of. Maybe it shouldn't have happened at all. We have no evidence that anyone else did what they did, taking over systematically the Greek forms of tragedy, comedy, epic, and lyric into their own vernacular languages. Still, uh, Lucretius taught us that nothing comes from nothing, so we need to ask what circumstances could have made this possible. Whenever I think of this problem now, I'm reminded of a lecture that I went to at Princeton given by the cosmologist Neil Turok, and he was talking all about the Big Bang. And he said that he went to talk to his old high school teacher in Scotland and was telling her what he was doing. She was asking him questions. He was trying to explain what it was like working on the Big Bang. And she said to him after a while, well, this is all very well, Neil, but what band? <laughs> so this, <laughs> I keep thinking, there was a Big Bang in 240, but what band? Uh, there was clearly something there to provide the material for the bang, all kinds of underlying conditions that made this revolution possible. It's not at all the case that the Romans didn't know anything about Greek culture before 240. We're talking about a qualitative shift in a long-standing relationship, not the sudden introduction of two strangers. Nor is it the case that Roman society had no forms of verbal expression of a highly cultivated kind before 240. Now, this is immensely controversial terrain these days. But the Romans had, for a start, Ludi Skyniki, stage shows uh, before 240. Colleges of Roman priests were singing hymns to their gods. And whatever other kinds of crafted verbal display Romans were delivering in the years before 240, the members of their elite were certainly making speeches to the people, speeches to the Senate, to their troops, and to representatives of other states. As a New Zealander, I think of the example of the Maori, who were completely illiterate when the whites arrived, but who had a highly developed and artistic tradition of oratory, 
with keen and expert judgment being given by seasoned practitioners. Uh, and there's a very interesting recent book on Maori oratory by Poyarewi in your bibliography, Faikororo, The World of Roman Oratory. So the Romans were no strangers to verbal craft before 240, but I agree with those scholars who nonetheless see a decisive shift beginning in the years right after the First Punic War as the Romans begin the process of establishing a new literature and a literary tradition in their own language. This is a process that was pioneered by translation from Greek, and so this evening I'll be suggesting that we should take translation very seriously in our investigation. But obviously this simple word, uh, literature, is immensely loaded. What do we mean by literature? Anyway, literature is not some reified concept that applies across time and space, and justifying the use of the word literature in an ancient context is notoriously not at all a straightforward thing to do. It's interesting that generally in the ancient world, we can use the concept of translation to define literature negatively, because a good working definition of literature in the ancient world is that which does not get translated. Andrew George, in his monumental edition of the Gilgamesh epic, the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic, points out that all kinds of other material was translated from the cuneiform script into different scripts in different languages, such as Aramaic, and eventually, indirectly, into Arabic, medicine, divination, astronomy, astrology. But the epic of Gilgamesh, and texts like it, did not survive in this way. As he says, the epic that we know died with the cuneiform writing system, along with the large proportion of the traditional scribal literature that was of no practical, scientific, or religious use in a world without cuneiform. And we see a very similar pattern centuries later with the transmission of Greek writing into Arabic. Greek science and philosophy were translated whole scale into Arabic, but not history and not literature. No Sophocles or Homer or Theocritus found its way into Arabic. So in the ancient world, what gets translated generally is the really useful stuff, and literature does not count in that bracket of useful. This is an attitude that would be very congenial to the denizens of Whitehall and to many university administrators. There's an interesting example of this kind of categorization in Princeton Society of Fellow in the Liberal Arts, where the disciplines covered include the humanities, including a couple of social sciences, and only one of the natural sciences. That's uh, astrophysics. It may seem strange that astrophysics is the only science that is at home with the humanities until you reflect that astrophysics is the only science that is perfectly useless. <laughs> what difference does it make whether the universe is 13 and 3 quarter billion years old or 13 and a half billion years old or 6 billion years old? or 6,000 years old, as some of the candidates for the Republican presidential nomination appear to believe. <laughs> no, maybe, after all, astrophysics isn't completely useless. Maybe literature isn't either. Everyone in the room will remember Hobbes' description of the natural state of man in Chapter 13 of Leviathan. No arts, no letters, no society, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. There seem to be plenty of people around nowadays who think it would be absolutely fine to go back to that natural state, except with better technology. So we'd have no arts, no letters, no society, and the life of man, solitary, rich, nasty, brutish, and long. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> um, as I said a minute ago, in the ancient world, a reasonably good working definition of literature is that which does not get translated. And this only throws into much higher relief the really strange nature of the case of the Romans' interactions with the Greeks. 
because what the Romans translate from Greece is precisely what we call literature, and what they leave untranslated is precisely what we call science. And this anomaly is further highlighted by the fact that the only text we know to have been translated from Punic into Latin was the 28-volume work of Mago on agriculture, which was somehow considered so important by the Roman Senate that they had it translated by a committee into Latin after the sack of Carthage in 146. And the only texts that we know to have been translated from Etruscan into Latin were manuals on brontoscopy and horispacy, technical aspects of the Etrusca Disciplina. Though in neither the Carthaginian nor the Etruscan case is it clear what, there, what else there was in organized written form anyway. As far as I can see, there's every reason to think that they did not have institutions corresponding to literature, and it's hard to think that anyone apart from the Greeks uh, did have a literature in the Mediterranean in 250 BC. Uh, maybe the Egyptians, uh, though it depends again how you define literature. Is it still a literature if only 100 people are reading it? So the existence of a Greek literature starts to look like the thing that we should be really startled by. We're spending a lot of times time these days wondering why there's a literature in Latin, but we should all be wondering why on earth is there a literature in Greek? So the Roman understanding of what literature was and their understanding of why they might need to get it from the other culture start to look more and more peculiar in this comparative perspective. But we can at least, I think, safely establish that the first practitioners of what we call a Roman literature will have had a well-developed sense of what they thought a literature was as a result of their Greek training and upbringing. Everyone knows that the first practitioners, Livius, Nivius, Ennius, were Graeci or semi-Graeci, Greeks or half-Greeks, as Suetonius calls them. Livius Andronicus, who's conventionally uh, identified as the first person to begin this process of translating Attic drama into Latin, was born a Greek. He started life as Andronicus and ended up as Lucius Livius Andronicus. It's normally assumed that he was enslaved by one of the Livii and became Lucius Livius Andronicus when he was manumitted. It's just as likely that he came to Rome as a free man, an entrepreneur who spotted a niche and eventually had citizenship bestowed on him, as happened with Aeneas later. And it's interesting to reflect what difference this makes about our view of the beginning of Roman literature, this first foundation figure. I mean, is he a freedman, or is he an entrepreneur on the make? From the perspective of these Greek and half-Greek writers, we can see that Roman literature was calced upon the institution of literature in Greece from the start. The first texts of Roman literature were translations, and translation, more than any other form of textual production, really marks out a text as belonging in a literary tradition. Now, this is so obvious that it needs spelling out. Livius and Nivius are working with canonical texts, and their way of apprehending these texts is not free-floating. It's mediated through Hellenistic conditions of scholarship and education. The first creators of Latin literature are products of the mid-third century, Livius is an almost exact contemporary of Eratosthenes of Cyrene, and Callimachus was perhaps still alive, only just in the year in which Livius put on his first drama in Latin. This is a time when Hellenistic scholarship is codifying and organizing the canons of drama and the other genres, creating an institution of literature to be commented upon, and this is the institution upon which the Roman equivalent is calced from the beginning. The act of translation out of a canonical body of ranked and organized texts engenders the apprehension that there's a lack in the target culture, a supplement that has to be filled. By 130 BC or so, the tragedian Accius 
could write a work called the Didascalica, which was able to represent Roman literature as a continuation of Greek literature, a continuation of the same phenomenon, a claim that couldn't possibly have been made by any other contemporary culture. So our poets are translating canonical texts, Homer, the classics of tragedy and of comedy, but naturally these canonical texts are being received in a contemporary frame, as canonical texts always are. Euripides, to someone like Livius or Naivius, is not our Euripides, or the Euripides of Jean-Pierre Vernon, the archetype of the classical Athenian democratic moment. Rather, he's the international melodramatic Euripides of the Dionysu Technitae and of Magna Graecia, where Greek drama had been incredibly popular since the 5th century, as we know from Oliver Taplin, Elizabeth Rawson, Eric Sapo, and Pat Easterling. The Greek cultural contexts that matter most in the third century are not Germana Graecia, as the Romans called it, Greece proper, but the cities of Sicily and southern Italy. Think of that statue of Pythagoras that was put up in the Forum in 295 BC, along with the statue of Alcibiades, as respectively the wisest and the bravest of the Greeks. So these are the cities that the first composers of Latin literature come from, with their Pythagoreanism, their sense of cultural marginalization and deracination. Uh, three of those four scholars that I just named, scholars who have done so much to illuminate the world of Attic drama outside Attica, are English. But it's curious how much work on this colonial context has been done by colonials, as they used to be called, especially colonials from an Antipodean context. Uh, Xapo is a Cana Canadian, now working in Sydney. A.D. Trendle was a New Zealander who made his career in Australia. Chris Dearden is a Scot with a career in New Zealand, and Peter Wilson is, of course, now doing important work on choral and dramatic culture in Sicily from his home base in Sydney. Ted Robinson from Sydney has a diverting footnote in the article on your bibliography discussing the perspective on the ancient colonial context brought to bear by those who are themselves colonials, and he cites T.J. Dunbabin, himself an Antipodean. In comparison with Syme's narrative, this new colonialism is a more marginal but also a more assertive point of view, which we could see reflecting the different relationship between the metropolis and the colonies, or the former colonies. Anyway, I said I didn't really believe in the personal voice in classical scholarship, so I'll leave that aside and go back to that cockpit at Magna Graecia. This is the world of the people who are creating the first Greek-based dramas and epics for the Roman people. And even though, even though we inevitably think of the process as being Hellenizing, importing into Roman culture something external, out of Greek culture, from the point of view of the artists, as Ronnie Shee put it to me, they aren't Hellenizing, they're Latinizing. They're exporting into Roman culture out of the Greek culture in which they are at home. This is actually a very unusual situation in translation, at least it is in the modern world, for a translator to be working out of his native language into an acquired language. And here I just want to spend a bit of time concentrating on the phenomenon of translation, which is something that we do tend to take for granted and it's worth trying to denaturalize. So on this particular point, for example, we're used to thinking of translation as being done by a native speaker of the target language, the language that the translation is going into. And that is the normal situation these days. This is what the translation studies people call L1 translation, translation into the first language of a translator. So a modern example would be uh, an English speaker, a native English speaker who translates from French into English. In that case, French is the source language, English is the target language. 
But Livius and Naivius are native speakers of the source language, of Greek, and not of the target language, Latin. This is what the translation studies people call L2 translation, translation into a second language of the translator, and a modern analogy would be an English person translating uh, from English into French. Again, in the modern world, L2 translation is much less common than L1 translation. Translators are normally translating into their native language, not out of it. Eventually, in the Roman world, L1 translation became the norm, with Cicero and Catullus and Germanicus translating into their native language, Latin. But in the first generations, L2 translation was the norm, with native or near-native speakers of Greek translating out of Greek into a language which was their second or their third language, Latin. Grasping this point helps us, I think, understand, for example, the distribution of Grecisms in early Latin literature. Friedrich Leo first properly documented the fact that early Latin literature has many fewer Grecisms than classical Latin. When we start reading Catullus and Virgil, we all have to learn about syntactical or grammatical features borrowed from Greek. The accusative of respect, for example, wounded in respect of his chest, or gleaming as far as his shoulders are concerned. Do you remember that kind of thing? <laughs> but in the fragments of early Latin literature, there is a markedly lower incidence of this kind of borrowed Greek linguistic feature. Just as in early Latin literature, we find a systematic domestication of Greek names and institutions. So Livius and Naivius address the Kemena, not the Muse. They talk about Mercurius, not Hermes. Now, considering that these writers knew Greek before they knew Latin, this may strike us as odd. But in fact, the urge to create a foreign-feeling or foreign-sounding effect in a translation is a feature of L1 translation, of situations where the writer is trying to reproduce in his own language something of the effect of strangeness and foreignness that hits him when he's reading the other language. And this is going to be true of Catullus and Virgil in a way it isn't so true of Livius and Naivius. In addition, uh, David Bellos has pointed out how reproducing a foreignizing effect in translation is only possible when the audience know the other language to some extent or have some kind of familiarity with that culture. The less foreign the other language feels, the easier it is to represent its foreignness. As Bellos shows, there are all kinds of accepted ways for representing Frenchness in an English translation because English and French cultures have a long intertwined history. And English readers of such a translation can be relied upon to have enough French or just maybe only just enough French to get the point. It's much harder to represent Germanness in English translation. And it's impossible to represent Hungarianness or Yorubaness uh, in an English translation. So the representation of foreignness in Latin takes a long time to develop momentum. And it depends mainly on the audience becoming more and more acculturated to Greek so that they can get the point. And it also depends on the eventual transition whereby the writers of Latin literature are no longer native speakers of Greek, but of Latin. And that takes two generations at least. This is only one of the ways in which the Roman project differs very markedly from the kind of thing that modern uh, translation studies people talk about. The whole operation is very like the projects of translation that attract, attract all the attention in uh, post-colonial and subaltern studies. There, the foreign language, the language being translated from, belongs to a politically or culturally dominant nation, let's say English, while the native language, the language being translated into, is a subordinate or subjugated one, as in the case in India under the Raj. The Roman case is much more complicated. 
The native language, Latin, is politically and militarily dominant to an ever-increasing degree. But the foreign language, Greek, still retains a cultural prestige that is close to dominance. Livius's translation work is already showing a Roman determination to push back against that cultural dominance, using a Greek to do so. There's a conscious attempt, I think, to turn Latin into a language of culture, to extend the imperium of the language. And these translations are transforming and redefining what Latin is and what Latin can do. Cumulatively, they're having the same kind of impact on Latin as Luther's translation of the Bible had on German. In a more general sense, we all take translation for granted, and any bookstore is full of translations. But in fact, translation is a very strange phenomenon, especially the translation of literature. In the ancient world, as I said, translation of literary texts was by no means a normal thing to do. And I had my eyes really open to the rarity and strangeness of translation in 2006 when I went to a conference at Columbia organized by David Dambrosch and Wiebke Deinecke. And it was one of those three-day multinational conferences and there were people giving papers on translation of Chinese into Japanese and, and so on. Um, and then there was a slot for translation in India. And um, a wonderful man called Harish Trivedi from the University of Delhi got up and uh, he said, you know, uh, I have the opposite problem from all of my colleagues. All of my colleagues here have only 15 minutes to say what they want to say, and they're trying to squeeze it all in. He said, I, on the other hand, have only one thing to say, and I have to try and spin it out for 15 minutes. So he carried on like this for a while, and then he looked at his watch. He said, well, I've used up seven minutes, but I have to tell you now, there is no translation in India. <laughs> that he immediately went on to qualify this remark, um, there have been periods of intense translation activity in India. Between the 13th and 16th centuries, the literary traditions of most modern Indian languages got their initial impetus from translations uh, out of Sanskrit. And many of the literary works of the regional languages were at that time translated into Persian or Arabic. But since then, translation across the boundaries of the different written literatures of India has been extremely rare. David Bellos says, for example, until very recently, nothing was ever translated directly between Urdu, Hindi, Kannada, Tamil, Marathi, and so on. And even now, most of the translation that goes on in India is into and out of English, and even the vernacular literatures are accessed by speakers of other vernacular literatures via English translation rather than via translation into their own language. So the first translations from Greek into Latin were an extraordinary step, and they knew it was extraordinary. Uh, Many people in the room will, will know and be fond of great moments in Stephen Hines' allusion into text where he talks about the pun that Livius Andronicus manufactures in his translation of the first line of the Odyssey. So, andra moene permusa polytropon, tell me muse of a man of many turns, uh, becomes virum mihi kamena inseca versutum. And versutum means turned. But, of course, turn is the word for translate in Latin. So Livius is saying that Odyssey is now a translated man. He's been translated. This is the last of his many turns. Uh, people used to say regularly that the Odyssey was the first translation into Latin. And so how can you pun on something that hasn't happened before? Uh, I imagine that people reading that translation of the Odyssey have been used to seeing the prologue of Livius's uh, comedies walking forward and saying, Livius vortet barbare. Now, translation is never just translation. These people are not just translating random texts that happen to strike their fancy. Virtually all of the early translations are of drama, 
commissioned by magistrates of the Roman state for performance at state festivals. We're working with an environment in which the writers have a heightened self-consciousness about what is at stake in the meetings between cultures, not just between languages or texts. And of course, it's a cliche of modern translation theory that the translator is always mediating between cultures as well as between languages and texts. So what are the broader cultural conditions that might have made this revolution possible? Uh, drama was the driving force for the first two generations, and so we need to look at the home of Roman drama, the Ludi Romani, if we're to try to begin to understand, a, understand the nature and causes of the revolution. Now, long before 240, the Ludi Romani had been a venue for experimenting with other cultures and for showcasing Roman identity. Above all, for over 120 years, the Ludi Romani had had a scenic component ever since 364 BC, when Ludi Skyniki, scenic games, were added to the program of the Ludi Romani. So what were they watching during those 120 years? How was it different from what they started watching in 240? Some uh, new kind of scenic performance related somehow to Greek dramatic performance must have become part of the Ludi in the reform of 364. This kind of development at Rome is part of a larger general fourth century phenomenon covering central and southern Italy, whereas we've seen the popularity of Greek drama was very wide and very deep, and where there were all kinds of independent initiatives riffing off the codes of Greek drama. Ted Robinson has an excellent discussion of these developments in his article on your bibliography, discussing new forms of comic performance being developed in Tarentum, for example, in the fourth century, and catching on in non-Greek central and southern Italy. And he mentions the new model Roman Ludi Skyniki as part of this new wave. Again, Peter Wiseman has brought together a variety of complex iconographic evidence for what he calls a common 4th century culture of mimetic representation extending far beyond the Greek cities of southern Italy and into Etruria and Latium. And there's a wonderful presentation of the visual evidence for this in chapter 5 of his Myths of Rome. Here, Wiseman uses engravings on bronze caskets to recapture the kind of shows that people were watching throughout central Italy, including, we may suppose, in Rome. These shows appear to mix stories together. They mingle tragedy and comedy and slapstick and striptease. Now, this is clearly an amazing world and one that used Greek dramatic forms as a kind of launching pad for its own purposes. Now, this is a model of cultural interchange that's very familiar, one where fidelity or even comprehension aren't necessarily at issue at all or only tangentially. At the borders between competing cultures, we see all kinds of creative miscomprehensions, as Robin Lane Fox calls them in his Traveling Heroes. The translation project that begins in 240 is different, though. It's a step beyond this kind of engagement. It's performed by people who know what getting it right is all about. They know how Greek drama is meant to scan. They know the difference between tragedy and a comedy. They know who belongs and which stories and they care about making the transition work. This act of appropriation was not a weak act of deference, but an enabling move, part of a larger project of cultural translation that made it possible for these interstitial middlemen, outsiders and foreigners, to capitalize upon their skills and produce something that in short order started to look like some kind of equivalent to the performance culture and literary traditions of the Greeks. It's a spectacular example of the power of mimesis. Anyone can be original. It takes real talent to be derivative. But what's behind this new desire to get it right? Why translation? Why this new model of fidelity? 
First of all, the more I think about it, the more I agree with those scholars who stress how vital it is to take the timing connection with the conquest of Sicily very seriously. And uh, this is something that I also uh, am surprised that we take for granted, the conquest of Sicily. Now, the conquest of Sicily was an amazing achievement, which loses some of its potency in our teleological narratives. Greeks and Carthaginians have been squabbling in Sicily for 300 years uh, when the Romans turned up in 264, and in one generation, they nailed it down. This must have had an absolutely stunning impact on the Greek world, and the conquest of Sicily puts Rome in a leading position on the world stage in a distinctively new way. So it's crucial to see the Ludo Romani of 240 in the light of the victory over Carthage, and the assimilation of Sicily as the first overseas province. And Matthew Lee's fine article on the maritime moment in last year's classical philology is a particularly powerful statement of this theme. At a reasonably banal level, we have to take very seriously the generation-long exposure of tens of thousands of Roman legionaries and naval personnel to the Greek culture of Sicily, especially of the Syracuse of Hero II. This insight goes back, as do so many of our insights, to Frederick Leo. In Sicily, we have an acculturation process for a potential theatrical audience back in Rome. We also have in Sicily a showpiece of, to the officer class of how a great Hellenistic power stages itself to an international audience. It was in Sicily, above all, that the Roman aristocracy learned how to play this game, observing heroes' monarchical displays. One of the clearest demonstrations of the impact of Sicily in this regard is the famous incident in 237, when Hero II came to Rome to see the games, bringing an enormous donation of grain as a gift for the Roman people. This provision of corn donations and of theatrical displays is part of Syracusan international politics going back to the 5th century, as Barbara Kowalczyk has shown. And I also recommend Emanuele Corti's article on how Rome learned to be a great power in the 3rd century, a process which, as he says, involved the development of an international vocabulary in order to participate as an equal in the ongoing dialogue between other leading powers. And part of this new vocabulary was the new spectacles. Uh, last year, I was lucky enough to be able to go to Nicholas Purcell's Grey Lectures in Cambridge on insiders and outsiders, and I found what he had to say about games and spectacles extremely relevant to this way of thinking about the new role of the Ludi Romani after the First Punic War. According to Purcell, games and spectacles are about outsiders showing off the city to outsiders and neighbors. Spectacles are about negotiating the differences between insiders and outsiders. And as part of this orientation towards outsiders, as part of this project of making distinctions, spectacles showcase hybridity. Now, after the lecture in which he'd been making this point, Stephen Oakley pointed out that it's very hard to think of a more compelling case of hybridity than Plautus, with his translations of Menander and Diphilus into Latin, combined with aspects of Oscar Natel and Farce. And if we think of the project of translation as a whole, the point is very clear. The Roman games, with their Latinized Menander and Euripides, showcase the Roman ability to process and internalize difference, to make it their own. And the games also showcase their ability to turn that understanding back onto a new audience of outsiders, including Latins, Samnites, Campanians, Etruscans, Greeks, and visiting Hellenistic monarchs. The Romans needed to know what the Greeks were like, and they needed to digest Greek culture in the process. The new spectacles were the crucial venue for working this out, especially in experimenting with being Greek, identifying with Greeks, trying to work out what it's like to look at the world like a Greek, as both tragedy and comedy enable them to do. 
one of my favorite examples of this split mentality is in Terence's Adelphi, when um, uh, Demia, the grumpy old father, says to Iskinus, the son, in qua kivitate, in what state do you think you are? That's a good question. I mean, is he in Athens or in Rome? And of course, this ability to use drama to put yourself into someone else's shoes and to look through the world at their eyes is something that Athenian drama had been doing from the start anyway uh, for an Athenian audience, making it possible for them to imagine what it's like being uh, uh, a Trojan or a Persian or a Theban. Relations with the Greek world are not all that's at stake. This mid-third century context is also the one in which the Romans are digesting their conquest of the Italian peninsula and formulating increasingly coherent views of the integrity of their new conquest and of the development of a new Italian reality. And again, the conquest of Sicily by providing the first overseas province must focus their minds on what Italy is. And here I recommend the paper by Dench and Curti and Patterson that lays all this out. This, I think, is very largely why the language of the new drama matters why the new literature has to be in Latin. Because the Italians are the main vectors for this initiative. It's imaginable that the new dramas could have been in Greek. In some ways, this might have been easier if we think of Glenn Bowersock's argument that Hellenism is a medium, not a message, providing a common language for local traditions and religions to express themselves, enabling differences to be smoothed down, providing a common language and helping to discover a common world and a cosmopolitan consciousness. But this, this, I think, is very much not what the Romans wanted. They did not want differences smoothed down. The new translations in Latin allowed difference to be maintained, difference between the Romans and their allies on the one hand and Greeks on the other, even as assimilation was practiced. The new translations are a distinctive example of the wonderful cardiac metaphor of Andrew Wallace Hadrill, at work, as he puts it in Rome's cultural revolution, if Hellenization is the diastolic phase by which blood is drawn into the center, Romanization is the systolic phase that pumps the oxygenated blood back to the extremities. So the new poets are trying to get it right in a new way, but getting it right can never mean getting it absolutely right. There's always slippage and lack of synchromation translation. This is true at the level of diction, and it's true at the level of the larger scale cultural interactions of the new hybrid Ludi Romani, or we should say the newly hybrid Ludi Romani, because they had always been a hybrid, first Etruscan-Roman, and then after 364, Etruscan, Oscan, Roman, and Greek. So the translators create differences even as they mediate, and they mediate even as they create differences. We can easily imagine scenarios in which there could have been even more slippage than actually happened. The previous forms of entertainment did not vanish from the Ludi overnight, and new forms of blending could have emerged. Maybe we see a botched attempt at such a new form in the notorious exhibition mounted by Lucius Anicius in 167 or 166 BC as part of stage games that he put on to celebrate his Illyrian victory of 168. And this is the passage on the front page of the handout. This is an amazing thing. Book 30 of Polybius. I won't read it all, but just to give you an idea, when Lucius Anicius, another Roman general, defeated the Illyrians, he held victory games in Rome and arranged matters to provide a, provoke a great deal of laughter, according to Polybius in Book 30, because he sent for the most distinguished Greek musicians, erected an enormous stage in the circus, and began by bringing all the pipe players on together. And then he names them, these very famous Greek artistes. He put them up on the stage and ordered them all to play their pipes in accompaniment to their choruses simultaneously. They started to perform their music along with the movement that went with it. 
but he sent them a message telling them they were playing poorly and ordered them to compete with one another more aggressively. When they expressed puzzlement, one of the officials, one of the lictors, made gestures indicating that they were supposed to wheel around and advance on one another, producing something resembling a battle. Uh, there's a bit of a mess with the text here. This produced immense confusion. The pipe players pivoted the central sections of their choruses around to face the wings and attacked their competitors one after another. Incredible noise and everything going on. And then the choruses enter into it. They stamp their feet and shake their costumes. And then one guy wraps his robes tight around himself and spins at the right moment and raises his fists as if intending to punish the pipe player who's advancing towards him. The audience goes wild. And then all the choruses clash and fight a sort of mock battle. And at the end of it, the situation as all these groups wrestled with one another was beyond description. And as for what I could add about the tragic actors, says Polybius, some people will think that I am joking. Now, from the point of view of the, of the, of the Greek observers, Athenaeus and Polybius, this shows the Romans up for the hapless boobs and Philistines that they always are in the artistic sphere. But what on earth did Nicias actually think he was doing? Eric uh, Gruen thinks it was sheer parody of Greek norms, a brazen act of confident self-assertion and humiliation by the Roman conqueror. I think it's worth trying a little bit of hermeneutic charity here and seeing Anicius trying out a jazzed-up version of the kind of mimetic dancing to the tibia that seems to have been part of the Ludi Skynaki since 364, together with boxing to the accompaniment of the tibia that also seems to have been part of games in Etruria and in Rome. This is the approach taken by Reitzenstein a century ago, more recently by Bernstein. The crowds are treated to something like the traditional choreography they're used to from the old Ludi, and Anicius is trying to modernize it all by blending in accompaniment from top Greek talent. And the top Greek talent, of course, have got not the remotest idea what's going on. To the knowing eye of the accomplished Greek observer, the result is a complete farce. But it's possible that we have here a trace of a more experimental approach to the importation of Greek culture one that didn't actually take hold. Whether this charitable interpretation of Anicius's program is right or not, we can at least be sure that his show was in competitive dialogue with the swank and smoothly professional shows that Aemilius Paulus had just put on in Amphipolis in 167 to celebrate his victory at Pydna the year before. And on the second page of the handout, you have a bit of Livy describing this. in the bit after the little break, for a crowd of all sorts of professionals in the art of entertainment gathered from all over the world, as well as athletes and famous horses. Moreover, there were delegations with sacrifices, and whatever more is usually done at the great games of Greece for the sake of gods and men was so carried out as to arouse admiration, not only for lavishness, but for skill in giving shows, at which Romans were then tyros. Aemilius is also, just after that bit I read to you, quoted for the famous remark that arranging a banquet and organizing ludi was part of being the same person who knew how to conquer in war. Aemilius here is following in the footsteps of the Diadochi, themselves following in the footsteps of Philip II and his son Alexander, great adepts at managing stage victory games. Anicius is perhaps reacting against Aemilius's suave imitation of Greek practice and trying to co-opt Greek artistes to give a new patina to traditional Roman spectacles. Maybe he's aiming at some novel synthesis that never took off, a different mode of transcultural translation, one that never developed any traction. 
Amelius Paulus's own solution to the problem of cross-cultural dialogue was to give impeccably Greek games in Greece and then to come home and stage what became the template for the quintessential Roman triumph, the most famous Roman triumph until that of Pompeius Magnus in 62 BC. Whatever blind alleys may have been explored in the context of Roman festival culture, the new literature certainly took off fast. I've been concentrating on the beginning moment with Livius Andronicus, but of course a totally new dynamic is introduced into the institution the moment a second poet starts producing. To Livius Andronicus, literature is Greek literature. But it's different for Nivius. As Vashing puts it, unlike his predecessor, Nivius did not see Greek literature as literature as such. So at this point, we're in a different kind of literary tradition as the poets focus on what is at stake in not only translating Greek literary culture, but also in developing an ongoing Latin literary culture. So I think we're dealing with a revolution here, a revolution which saw the aggressive adaptation of Greek epic tragedy and comedy in the long generation leading up to the triumph of Hannibal. And that revolution itself needs to be contextualized within the yet larger state-sponsored Hellenism, which we can observe operating at full throttle all through the third century, especially in the religious domain, from the introduction of the cult of Aesculapius in 291 to the importation of the Mania Mater in 204. The main state-sponsored religious festival, the Ludia Romani, becomes, in the middle of this century of religious importation, the venue for a new kind of religious experimentation. Importing drama is not the same as importing the cult of Aesculapius or of Nike, Victoria, but it's related. It's an attempt to ramp up the prestige and attractiveness and power of the games by reaching out to the Greek world for the right kind of charismatic importation, an importation which could then be transformed in the Roman way in its new home by the men from the contact zone. Thank you. Professor Feeney said he didn't really believe or doesn't really believe in the personal voice in classical scholarship. And he never did give us his autobiography as a colonial or post-colonial classical scholar. But what he did do was to give us an absorbingly lucid, learned, witty, and coherent account of the origins of a Roman literature in which his personal qualities did, I think, shine through. The theme of translation so elegantly pursued tonight was like the process followed here uh, in, a, in a lecture which translated for us a complex cultural historical moment and turned it into a brilliantly immediate, dramatic and vivid story of a gripping literary revolution. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.